Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Father in heaven, we give thanks for this Lord's Day and we give thanks for your word. We're thankful for our brothers and sisters throughout all of history who have been faithful followers of you and have faithfully worshipped you, have faithfully covenanted themselves to you. And so as we read your word and try to understand covenants and your relationship with us, help us to be enlightened and then help us to practice that same kind of faithfulness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let me begin by just doing a brief review of last week. And uh, we uh, began by just the broad picture, what we're trying to do with this Sunday school lesson. And the first thing we're trying to do is understand covenant through the whole biblical context, Genesis, Genesis to Revelation. The next, and that's an interesting. Again, like we even made this point, I'll make it in a little bit, that it, it sounds obvious, but it's not as obvious in today's world when we, we're, the way we split up the Bible. And, and I talked a lot about the influence of dispensationalism last week and how it has affected not just our understanding of the end times and whether there's a rapture or not, but it, it affects the way we read the Bible, the way we break up the Bible the way we believe what our roles are in modern society, the way we understand what the church did in the New Testament, all these things are affected by dispensationalism. And so it's obvious, but it's not really that obvious. There is a covenantal story from Genesis to Revelation. But then we also want to take that and, and narrow it down to the New Testament context, the Matthew to Revelation context. And that is its own little story, in a sense, that does continue the big story, but it's a story that begins with the birth of Christ. And this is key, because we don't want to just point to moments. And this is one of the things we're talking about in covenants, is it's not just a moment that a covenant is made. There's a full story of covenantal relationship that contains all kinds of elements that we will be getting into as we study Acts today. So we'll be getting into Acts this morning. But what, what we want to do with the New Testament is understand that Jesus institute or is, is bringing in the new covenant from his birth, through his life, the things he does in his life, his ministry that begins at the age of 30 at his baptism, through the cross. And sometimes we just think the cross, that's where the new covenant, that, that's the event, but it's not. It's, it's the whole life of Christ. And then it continues through Revelation. And the book of Revelation is not just a moment where there's this thing that happens and that's the end, the destruction of the temple, for instance. It's bigger, it's broader than that. But then we want to narrow it even further to the cross of Christ, the past the cross of Christ, to the story that begins in Acts and ends in Revelation. This, this story that begins in 30 AD, and I didn't mention this last week, so you may, just in case anybody is wondering when I say 30 AD, um, because you may think, okay, Christ is born on 0 AD, and then he lived 30 years, his ministry began, so that means he died in 33 AD, but our timeline is actually off a little bit, because we know when Herod dies, and we know different aspects through history, whether it's solar events and things that happened, we, we understand that, the, that Jesus was actually born about three years before 0 AD, so the story is actually Jesus' death occurs somewhere in that 3080 region. So 3080 to 70 AD 
that's where we're narrowing down, and we're going to study that by narrowing down even more into the book of Acts. And Acts kind of covers that period. Acts begins right after, right at Jesus' ascension, and it leads up into about the early to maybe the mid-60s. You know, it ends with Paul going to Rome, and then we don't know, you know, the events end sort of there, and they're open-ended. But that's, that's what Acts, and we're not going to cover all of Acts. I may jump, jump around a little bit, but we're really, what I want to hit with Acts is, so last week was the intro, the sort of the beginning part. What I would like to do is hit the very first part of Acts, Acts chapter 1, uh, the ascension, and then Pentecost. And so we may skip a few things, or I may just make a reference to, say, you know, the choosing of the disciple, the, you know, the, the disciple that replaced Judas, but because that's in there. But I don't want to spend a lot of time because it's not as relevant to what we're talking about. But I do want to get into Acts 1, 1 today and start from there. And then finally, the other thing we want to do um, is take what we learn, you know, and we're, we're, we're beginning with the big picture of the Bible and we're narrowing down to Acts 30 to 70, but then ultimately that is to inform us what we're doing post-70. So we are in this new context past the destruction of the temple. A lot of things have happened and not happened, like the rebuilding of a new temple, which I don't think will ever happen, but it is a massive influence on our society. We, you look today and something happens in Israel and everybody is focused on that because they think it has these implications, biblical implications to understanding how the Bible is fulfilled. But it's a fascinating thing. I won't spend a lot of time on it, but man, when, G, when God said this is going down, it went down and it has not come back. And so that's something to think about. God's promise has extended into this world past God's word, you know, we're, we're at the end, of, we have God's word now, it ends in Revelation, but God's word has extended, and it will continue to extend, and his promises will continue to be fulfilled, at, I say until, but when he comes again, and even into eternity, so that's covenantal faithfulness, that's covenantal theology. So, just real quick, I'll ask a few questions, see if you remember, when we talked about a covenant, the basic definition was a contractual agreement between two parties. Can anybody tell me some of the, five, the traditional five characteristics of what a covenant is? What are, what are characteristics of a covenant? Every covenant has a mediator. Every covenant has blessings. And then on the flip side of that, every covenant has curses, every covenant has a memorial sign, and then every covenant expands as, as we go through scripture. Tell me some of the covenant administrations, like who some of these mediators were traditionally as we understand them. Who, who, was, who was a covenant mediator? What's that? Yeah, so you have Moses. It begins with Adam. Noah. Abraham, Moses, David, Jesus. And this is traditional. I would actually argue that there's, there's, more, um, there's more covenantal mediators throughout Scripture, but this is traditionally how we understand that. And so I'm happy to just use this traditional understanding as we go through Acts. Linguistics. The only thing I want to point out here is what I pointed out last week. This, under, this word covenant means, at its root, both Hebrew and Greek to, Greek, to create. So creation is inherent, is baked in. A new creation is baked into every covenant administration. That's what that word means. We talked about New Testaments and how, you know, we think about the New Testament, but there were actually many New Testaments that God would build a, a, a group of books would be built, given to his people, they would follow that, and then a period of time would pass, and then it would be deemed necessary by God to call more men to write scripture. He would, you know, 
inspire them through the, through the Holy Spirit, and they would write more books, give it to God's people. They would continue on that trajectory. So it's not just God gave them the Old Testament, and then he decided, I'm going to give you a New Testament. He's always giving New Testaments throughout Scripture until we have the completion of the canon here. We also talked about different words that are used when talking about this new age to come. We used words like regeneration, restoration, reformation, refreshing, <clears throat> the fullness of time, new creation, latter days, last days, end of the age. And then we, we ended by talking about some of the things that happened in the Old Testament, but actually still happen in the New Testament. They've just changed, they, they've been fulfilled, they've been expanded. And so we said things like there was a central sanctuary of worship. And in the New Covenant, we have a decentralized sanctuary. Wherever God's people gather together, wherever God's people are, and they, they gather together and worship. You have bloody rites, and now you have unbloody rites. You had animal sacrifices, and now we are living sacrifices. And Jesus was that, the, the Lamb of God. You have partial revelation, and now you have a complete revelation. You have the Jew-Gentile divide in the Old Covenant, and now there is no distinction. You have the memorial name of God in the Old Covenant is Yahweh. Now that name is Jesus. You have you know, the failure of the Jews over and over. The story of the Old Covenant is this: they cannot follow, they cannot obey God, it's till Jesus comes, and as that true Jew, as that true Israelite, he perfectly obeys God. So now, with all that in mind, <clears throat> what I would like to do is just get into Acts. And as I go through Acts, I'm just going to be hopping back into the Old Covenant. So I have Acts 1 through 6 here. We'll see. We may get through, like... I, got, I surprised myself last week, so... Um, Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe I'll, I'll hit the end of it again. So, <clears throat> and the, the other thing, and I didn't even think to remind them about the um, whiteboard, but if you have your paper from last week, I did put up this, what I think is a very helpful diagram of what it looks like. You have in the New Testament, 30 to 70 is this chart where you see the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are sort of, I don't want to say blending together, but they are, like, the Old Covenant is fading away. 70 A.D. is the end of the Old Covenant, but you have the institution of this New Covenant that is growing. And a lot of things are happening in Scripture that we misinterpret. We even, in our, in our own context here, have a hard time understanding because we don't get the full picture. We don't get actually what is happening there. And that, I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll say something quickly about that. We all have kind of heard that we don't want a proof text. You know, a lot of bad arguments, theological arguments happen because we proof text. We see something in the Bible, it looks like it's a command, or it looks like it's, it's you know, here's, here's this thing here, and I don't see anything else about it. You know, like, it, we, this is what it must be, and we don't get the context, or maybe the, the better ones that proof text say, okay, well, let's look at the verses before and after. But really, you have to get the whole story down. And, and so one of the, there's a lot that I could say, and I don't necessarily want to get into all of the different controversies. But for instance, um, well, here's one we probably mostly agree on, like the rapture, you know, like there's one or two verses that people read and they go, oh, that looks like that, you know, and a whole theology has been built on the misinterpretation of a couple of verses that seem to talk about something that in their minds, oh, well, this is what they're talking about. They say a blood moon, so, hmm, let me take that and then look at the world and let me interpret it according to this whole new um, worldview that I've created out of these couple of verses, and they miss the whole point about, that begins in Genesis 1, about how the sun, moon, and stars represent rulers. They represent kings. And when you see uh, this destructive language of the sun, moon, and stars, 
The Bible has already set up from the, from the very beginning that this is what it's talking about. You shouldn't have to see the sun, moon, and stars are turning red. Okay, let me go to science and figure it out. No, the, Genesis 1 has already said, hey, these things rule, and throughout Scripture, you can trace a whole pattern of what the sun, moon, and stars represent. They represent kings and nations. And when these things fall, they don't literally fall from the sky. You don't see the sun just fall down. What you're seeing is kings and nations falling. Their sun, moon, and stars are collapsing. And so you don't have to then go into this fantasy world where you think all these, you know, there's a literal dragon monster that's going to come and get us. And no, there's the dragon from the garden is represented in a whole theology develops through the Bible of what the serpent is and what the, the, the dragon is until you get to Revelation. You don't have to get weird with it. The Bible has already given you a pattern. So that's what we want to do when we talk about covenants. We don't want the, um, our own ideas to teach us. We don't want our own misconceptions or preconceptions to guide us and understanding God's relationship with his people. We want God's word to do that. So if you want to follow along, Acts 1, verse 1 is where we're going to begin. And let me see. Did you say 1010 is when we're, what we're aiming for? Okay. And I, uh, I'm going to be drinking. My voice was getting better last week. It felt really good. And then yesterday, it just kind of has now regressed a little bit. So I'll be drinking quite a bit. <clears throat> Acts 1, let me just read it. And uh, again, we'll aim for 1, 1 through 6. We'll see what happens. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Let me just, I'm going to go back. For you that are in here, just this, this alone will be helpful for the sermon later. Because I'm, I'm preaching on covenant renewal worship. This passage, I discovered this past week, I've never even noticed this before, but I was at Theophilus this past week, and part of our training was on liturgy and, and scripture, and as, we, as, as I was being taught one thing, I'm thinking about Acts 1, and I'm looking, I'm going, whoa. So just, I'm not going to talk about this in the sermon, but I do want to point this out. Um, he says, he goes, uh, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, until the day he ascended, this is offering language, Jesus was taken up. After he, had been, after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself <clears throat> um, alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while your, your Bible may say staying, that's not the best translation. This is the only time this word appears in Scripture. While he was gathered or while he was eating, with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jer Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, and that baptism was a baptism of repentance, but you will now be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This, this baptism of the Holy Spirit gives us access to God. Not many days from now, all five offerings in the old covenant are, are found right here at the very beginning of acts you have a tribute offering you have a sin offering you have a trespass offering you have um going off the cuff here i forgot what i say guilt trespass um tribute um ascension offering and then right smack dab in the middle you have a peace offering you have the lord the eating together so We'll talk about that more in, in the sermon, but I think there's something here to even think about at the beginning of Acts. We get all five um, offerings here that Jesus did with his people. 
So let's begin there. Uh, and I said, uh, yeah, let's just stop there. I'll read that, and then we'll go back through it. Verse 1, Theophilus. I don't want to make a big deal about this, but Theophilus, the word means dear to God, friend of God. It's a real person, and very much is a letter written, you know, dear Theophilus, but we ought to not just stop there, and that's probably what we do. Again, this is sort of this very literal, you know, we, we don't really expand our understanding of Scripture. God orchestrates these things. There's a guy here named friend of God, dear to God, and this is a letter not just written to him, but to the whole church. It's the story of the church. So this book begins, it's the story of the people who are friends of God, dear to God. Um, the next thing that he says is all that Jesus began to do and teach began. This is new creation language that began with Jesus. Now, what we have here are signs of a new creation, the things that Jesus began doing. What do we have here in this passage? We have, after you had given commands through the Holy Spirit, we have the Holy Spirit here at the beginning of Acts. The Holy Spirit is present in creative acts. Genesis 1 the Spirit is hovering over the waters. And that word hovering is fluttering. So the idea is that the Spirit is fluttering like a bird. Its wings are fluttering over this abyss. And something new is going to come out of that. Um, then we move on to Noah. And Noah is on this ark, and there has been this decreation event. The, the, the waters above and the waters below that were separated in the creation have now come back together. God has said, I'm finished with these people, but he has called out Noah. He has decreated the world, and he's starting over. And so as the waters subside, what does Noah do? He's, he's on the ark, and he sends out, and there's more to it. I mean, he sends out first a raven, and the raven doesn't. But what does he do? He sends out a dove. And this dove goes, and it finds an olive branch, and it comes back. And Noah knows that the waters are subsiding, that a new creation has happened. Out of the flood, green has come forth. A dove has gone out and brought new creation to him. That's the sign. Jonah Jonah is tasked with going to a new nation. The reason why Jonah doesn't want to go is not because Jonah hates, you know, foreigners and not because Jonah hates foreign missions and thinks we should keep our money locally. Now, Jonah knows because of, in Deuteronomy, Jesus has told his people, if you disobey me, if you do not keep this covenant, I will go to another people. And so Jonah, as a prophet to this very disobedient people, when God says, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach the gospel to them, preach the word of God to them, he's like, no, I know what you're doing. Absolutely not. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to go the opposite direction. And we know the story, but I just want to point out, what is, does anybody know what Jonah means? It means dove. Jonah is sent across the waters in a giant fish across the waters to a new nation. And he doesn't even, I mean, all we get is Jonah says, 40 days you're going to die. And they all repent. So it's a new creation. The dove is sent across the waters and a new, a new people are formed. Jesus' baptism. What happens when he comes up out of the water? The Holy Spirit, like a dove, descends upon him. So, what we have here at the beginning of Acts is the same thing. We have the Holy Spirit present in this new creation. Let's look at another theme here in the first part. Um, so again, this is Luke. I, didn't, I don't think I mentioned that, but I think you all know that. This is Luke uh, writing about what, he is, you know, what has happened. He's kind of giving Theophilus this uh, quick summary here. 
And it's interesting because if you go back and you read other, so he's, he's given this quick summary. If you go back to Luke and you see the bigger, like what he's summarizing, you don't get these details. So it's not so much that Luke is changing the story or anything. What he's doing is he's very specifically giving us these details at the beginning of Acts that he didn't necessarily give us when he was giving us the full picture of you know, what Jesus did on the cross and what happened in the resurrection and coming to the disciples and, and how Jesus met with them and the ascension. Like That's a whole story in the gospel. Here we're getting Luke's very specific rendering of this with key phrases and words that he wants us to pick up on. So we have the Holy Spirit. We also have, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. 40 days. 40 days. Everywhere in the Bible is 40 days. It's very significant that Jesus appears to his disciples after his resurrection for 40 days. Let's talk about 40 days for a little bit. There's a bunch of them, but I'll just throw a few key ones. Does anybody, like, give me a few. What are some 40-day events in the Bible? Yeah, the flood. Again, Noah. Noah, we're going we're gonna to keep hitting Noah today, I think, because it's such a great test case. Um, Moses, when Moses first sort of takes the, takes the role as, as the deliverer of, Egypt, of his people in Egypt, what do they do? They reject him. Remember, he has that whole incident where the, his brother is being um, harassed and, and abused, and he kills that Egyptian, and he... And he Moses thinks this is the event, like the people are going to rally around. God has called him. He's going to go, you know, deliver them. And they are like, nope, like, what are you doing, man? You're going to make things harder on us. Get out of here. And so Mo, Moses leaves and goes to Midian for 40 years. So you have Moses in the wilderness leaving before he returns for 40 years. When he finally does return and he leads his people out, how long are they in the wilderness? 40 years. Um, Moses, he goes on Mount Sinai, instructed by God before conquering Canaan. So this is before the, the, you know, God's had it with them. So Moses goes up on Sinai. This is our Mosaic Covenant event. That is not just one event. It's this big story going on. Um, and Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days. When he comes down from the mountain, what does he see? The golden calf. You know, the, he's been up there 40 days. He comes down, and he just breaks the, you know, he, he has this moment of just, he's fed up. But what does he do? He mediates. God is like, I'm done with him. I'm going to kill him. And Moses mediates on their behalf. Moses has just made a covenant with God, he comes down and on behalf, as the mediator of this covenant, pleads on their behalf for God and God hears them. Um, Jesus, what does he do as soon as we just talked about his baptism? What happens right after that? Forty days into the wilderness. Um, and um, again, now this makes it more obvious, right? AD 30, the cross, to AD 70. We have a 40-year period. That's what the New Testament is. 40-year period that something is happening. It's a wilderness wandering. And a lot of things that are happening in this 40-year period are not things that happen to us today as the body of Christ. They're not even things that necessarily happened before then. But they were building up to that. They are things that Jesus went through. The church is going through, and this is a big theme in the New Testament, the church is going through things that Jesus went through. They, they are following their Savior. So when Jesus is persecuted, you see, well, I, I may get this later, this is, um, this is a preview, you're going to see Peter go through the exact same things, and then you're going to see Paul go through the exact same things. The church starts mimicking her head, her Savior. Um, when Jesus, he we talked about this last week, when Jesus heals people, he's not just healing people because, you know, he wanted to be a doctor and, and, and likes to do that. He does love to heal. I mean, Jesus does love to save us and to heal us. But Jesus is healing 
very specific people. Jesus is healing people, Jewish people, who cannot worship. They have been ousted from covenant renewal worship. They cannot approach God at all. They cannot have their sins forgiven because there's these things in Leviticus that, that, that prevents them from doing it. Flows of blood, blindness. They can't be priests. And Jesus is coming and he's restoring them. This is one of our words, remember? He's restoring them so that they are the, his new people. They, they, forget the actual leaders who are corrupt and wicked. He's making a new people by healing them, restoring them so that they can come and worship. Um. Now, I want to do a quick, I want to do a, I say quick, we'll see. Um, I want to use Genesis 6, or Noah, as the test case. Let me read Genesis 6, and um, it's 6. I'm going to just read little sections here, and I want you to just listen and see if you can pick it. I'll, I'll talk about it after. See if you can pick out these acts events that we've just been talking about. See if you can pick out these creative events or decreative events. All right, the first one is Genesis 6, 5 through 8. And you know the story of Noah, so that I'm, you know, I'm hoping you get the context and you just, as I hit these little bits, you'll know where we're at. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart, or to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And now I'll move down to 17. And this is God talking to Noah. And he's already given him instructions on how to build the ark. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life under heaven and everything that is on earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. This is the very first time this word is used, covenant, in the Bible. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. Let's say 18, yeah. Um, now jumping ahead, past the flood, past the 40 days, um, let me read 8, 1 through 3. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. That, that word wind is the exact same word as spirit. God made a spirit blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. Um, and now 6 through 12 of chapter 8. Mm, got old man eyes. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. And then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him in the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. So I'll just point out, too, amongst the things we already talked about, this it's not just 40 is an important number, seven, seven, seven. We begin the Bible with seven days. Anytime you see seven, it ought to send these little ring, you know, this bell off that says creation. There's something going on here. And it may not be exactly one for one, but I guarantee you just about every seven-day event in the Bible is going to have something with lights or something with waters and land 
or something with the animals. Like it, every single time, every seven-day event is going to have something that connects to creation. And now finally, uh, chapter 9, 7 through 17. So we've already heard this word covenant that was promised. Now we see the actual covenant. And listen to the words that we find here. And you, and I'm not going to start at the beginning, but um, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, notice here, the first time God discusses the covenant and calls Noah is just Noah, but now he's speaking to Noah and his sons. Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, the new creation, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you, and every living creature that is with you, for all future generations. <clears throat> I have set my bow in the cloud, not a bow in the clouds. It's very pur purposeful. It's a singular word. I have set my bow in the cloud, um, lost my place. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the cloud, I will remember, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth, God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And the thing about cloud, I'll just say this real quick. Just like the other things we've mentioned, there are, like Theophilus. Theophilus was a real guy, but Theophilus also uh, is typological. He represents something bigger. His name is very purposeful. It's providentially chosen. Rainbows in the clouds are truly signs to us. When we see a rainbow in the cloud, we ought to think about God's covenant with us. But it's more than that. If you read through Scripture, you get to Ezekiel 1 and other passages, you know, even, even the Exodus. How does God lead them across the wilderness? In a cloud. God rides on a cloud. And in that cloud, He is surrounded by His bow. His war bow is what it's called. And that war bow is a representation of his people. When he looks at that rainbow or that war bow in the cloud, he is reminded of his people, his people surround him. That rainbow, and, and we actually have verses of colors representing this, this, we have this rainbow. When you get to the end of Revelation, the city of God is made up of a rainbow. It's made up of every color jewel and there's a connection there. God's people at the end of Revelation, that is what the city of God looks like. That is what um, the new creation, you should say, looks like, you know, finally looks like. That's its fulfillment. Um, so, man, sorry. In this story, we have decreation, we have animals brought to Noah like Adam. We have 40 days. We have wind, dove. We have an ark. How was Moses saved from the very beginning? It's the same language. Moses was put into an ark. And, you know, all the little baby boys are being murdered in Egypt. And, and Moses is saved when they build him. It's the exact same. It's the, the, the made with pitch. And it, it's Moses is saved in this little ark and the church is an ark. A church is a place of safety. Now, the church, not necessarily the building is the ark, but we are in an ark. We are, Christ is the ark. We are in Christ. That is a picture that, that, that goes out. We are saved from the floodwaters, so to speak. The, the, the world cannot harm us because we are safe. Now, it can kill us but it can't harm us, right? Like, we have everlasting life 
in this ark, in the safety of Christ. Um, but there's also another word here that's interesting that, that, that you see throughout covenantal language that we didn't talk about last night. What does is, what is God tell Noah to do the moment they get out of the ark? He tells him to increase and multiply, be fruitful and multiply. What, where does that language come from? Genesis 1. Well, let's, let's look in Acts. Let's look at the fulfillment of what that sounds like. And this is where I'll jump around in Acts a little bit. Um, Acts 6, 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Acts 12, 24. So the death of Herod, he dies. He, he uh, you know, says, I'm a God, and then immediately he's struck down and, uh, and has a pretty gory death. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And now, Acts 19, 20. So, the Lord, uh, so this is Paul in Ephesus. He has this uh, encounter, the sons of Sceva. And, um, so, but it ends with, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That's the fulfillment that we see. Increase and multiply, increase and multiply. We should, even though it's not literally, it is, right? So it is talking about having children. You know, you can't disconnect those things. From the very beginning, increasing and multiply does mean have children. But it's bigger than that. And so in Acts, increasing and multiply is the growth of the church. And that means having children. But it means sharing the gospel with your coworkers. And it means you being faithful and letting your good works before men so that they can see and go, hmm, there's something different about them. And it means, as we will learn in the sermon this morning, coming, gathering together, because what we do here in worship is also part of that. That's what the Acts Church did. They gathered, they, they, they worshiped together in the face of persecution, the face of their enemies, and God killed Herod, but then he increased and multiplied them. We just got about eight minutes left. Let me continue. Um, uh, so I already mentioned this. Uh, verse 4, this, this word here that the ESV says stayed, staying together, where Jesus was staying with them. The KJV uses the word assembled. See, that no, nobody really knows. They, they all have different, you know, translations. The NASB says gathering. The NIV of all the, <laughs> the good old NIV actually gets it right here. Uh, you know, keep, keep your ESV for most things. But when you come to, uh, to Acts 1, maybe you pull out your NIV, eating, they were eating together. That is the best translation, I think, right there. Um, because eating is so key. Um, this parallels, actually, the Ascension passage in Luke 24. Remember, I said Luke gives this, in, in his gospel, gives this bigger story um, but what happens? The ascension takes place after Emmaus. So Jesus appears. So the whole story is Jesus appears. Um, he, he's walking along the road. These, these men are walking. They're lamenting what's happened. And he's like, what's going on? And they're like, don't you know? They, they don't know who this guy is. Even once he, they invite him to eat dinner with him, they still don't know who he is until he does what? He breaks bread. He breaks the bread and then their eyes are open, and they realize this is the Lord. He has risen from the dead. And then they go and tell the disciples, and they're like, you'll never guess what happened. And the disciples are like, whatever, you know, you're crazy. And then Jesus appears to them, and they still are just like, what's going on? And then he says, give me some fish. Let me eat. Let's eat. And then the next thing happens is the ascension. He takes them, and they go up on the mountain, and there's the ascension story. So the ascension takes place in the story of eating where, God, where Jesus is revealing himself as the risen Christ to them in the midst of eating, in the midst of a meal. Um, the main point is this. There is a relationship between being assembled and eating. Luke records various incidents where the risen Lord ate with his disciples. 
the beginning of Acts sets the tone for what the new covenant is. The giving of the Holy Spirit, baptism, a new wilderness wandering leading to a promised land, the character and the identity of the church, assembling and eating is foundational to who we are as the church. Is eating common to the covenant pattern? Well, I'll run through these quickly. I was going to read, but um, I'll just mention because I don't want to spend my time. I got five minutes. So Adam, covenant with Adam. What, what is the whole foundation there for what happened in, in the fall? It's the tree of life and the tree of knowledge is central to Adam's covenant. And he, and it's eating the wrong thing is what actually breaks that covenant. Um, <clears throat> Noah, um, 9, 1 through 4, I, I lied, I will read. Um, <clears throat> Noah, 9, 1 through 4. Um, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and every, upon every bird of the heavens. So now there's this new relationship. The animals are like, Hey, these guys are sketchy now. We need to keep our distance. And upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they will be delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And I give you, as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you shall not eat, you can eat anything you want now, but you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, the blood is still flowing in it. Um, Abraham, Genesis 15. If you just read, again, remember I said, these, these stories are bigger than just the event. And that's one thing we have to remember. That's what I'm hoping Acts helps us with. If you just read Genesis 15, you know, Genesis 15 is the covenant with Abraham. And remember, Abraham goes into this deep sleep and these animals are divided up. And you have this whole story of separate, again, creative acts where these animals are separated, just like in creation. There's separation and, and God goes between them and this covenant happens. And you may read that story and then go, well, there's no eating here. But what happens right before that? If you go to Genesis 14... Moses has, or Abraham has just saved Lot. He has just had this battle in Sodom, and he has saved Lot, where he has freed Sodom. He has helped them. And on his way back, who comes to see him? Melchizedek. Melchizedek comes and brings bread and wine to Abraham. Abraham sits down, he eats this bread and wine, and then a covenant is made. And so we, just because our chapters are broken up right there, we should not separate these things and you know maybe we'll have a Sunday school lesson about how we need to actually get better at even our Bibles and it almost sounds uh, sacrilegious to say this they imperfect men put this stuff like our chapter breaks the way that we divide certain things up we have to it's not a bad thing I mean it's it's necessary and it's helpful I mean if you didn't have chapter breaks you know, it would, you'd be like the, you know, the old, uh, the, you know, the, the Hebrews, you know, everything would be scrunched together. You'd have to figure, figure out where it stops and there was no uh, punctuation or anything. So I'm thankful that we do, but we have to get in the habit of not letting chapter breaks tell us that, okay, the story's over. Let me, let me move on. We have to remember that this is a full story and the chapter breaks are simply just helps for us. And, um, but let me quickly talk about, so Moses, the covenant with Moses, Moses, Aaron, the 70 elders go up on Sinai and they have a meal. They sit down, they eat a meal, but Moses is the only one that can go on up the mountain. Here's an interesting one, David. We could even argue whether this is a covenant that's being made because the covenant with David has been foreshadowed. It comes afterwards. It's this big event, but we do, everybody points to 2 Samuel 7 and says, well, here's the covenant with David. And it is, David wants to build the temple. You know, David's like, how can I sit in my palace? You know, God's given me rest. My enemy's defeated. How can I sit here and do this? And God's temple's not built. And he wants to go build the temple. And God says, no, you're not going to build it, but I am making, you know, you are going to be the king. You are, you know, through your line, the, the true king will come from you. There's this it's covenantal language, and I'm fine calling it a covenant. But it's interesting. There's no meal there. But again, don't let the chapter breaks fool you because in chapter 9, 
what happens? David's first act as a king who has now been told he is God's king, and God, through him, the true king will one day come. He says, is there anybody left from Saul? Saul was the one that turned and broke covenant with God, and he died. Jonathan died. Is there anybody left? Yes, there's one guy. There's this broken, disabled uh, Mephibosheth, and David says, bring him to me. And he brings him, and he's scared to death, and he says, sit at my table. Come and eat. And he restores the line of Saul to the table. So in this instance, if David is the king, he's, taking, he's no longer being given a meal. David is giving a meal as a covenantal act. And I'm out of time, but I'm sure you could think of over and over and over again Jesus in the various food events, beginning with his birth as he is born in a trough. Jesus is born and laid in a place that animals eat. And all through the wedding of Cana, feeding the 5,000, John 6, I am the bread of life. The Last Supper, this bread, this wine is a sign of the new covenant. Um, Jesus on the cross is given wine. He rejects it the first time, but because remember, he has said, I will not eat, I will not drink of this cup again until the new covenant, until it's finished. First time, they try to give him sour wine, and he says, no, he's hanging on the cross. And then he says, it is finished, and what do they do? They bring wine again, and he drinks it, and then he dies. And then I talked about Emmaus, talked about Jesus eating fish. We'll stop there. I didn't do it this week, but uh, we will pick up on verse 5 next week. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we give thanks for your word, and we're thankful that we can dive deep into it. I pray that it would bear fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Amen.